You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. How uh, really precious to be in God's presence this morning in worship together. Unfamiliar place, familiar to some of you. I don't, how many of you went to school here? Was this the dining room now? Was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was it back in your day, gents? It wasn't. Okay. But you guys recognise this, so you've eaten food here. <laughs> Our prayer is today that you'll receive spiritual food here. That God will speak a word that nourishes, that equips, that helps. Um, We've currently, we've been looking at our vision and our values at Riverview Church and I said last week we want to make it really, really, really clear to you what our destination is as a church and what our expectations are of ourselves as we head in that direction. If you have just looked out of the window recently, no doing that when I'm speaking by the way, <laughs> Mr. Meldrum, you behave yourself. <laughs> He, he came in this morning and he said, Oh, I don't like this. I <laughs> feel like I'll get told him. Um, that's our vision. If you look out the window, you see this town. You see the houses, you see the industry, you see the life that takes place there. The, the joys, the heartaches, the, the life and death. The places where God is welcome and the places where he's not. Our vision is for all of those places. To see his kingdom come and to see him glorified there. Last week we looked at actually a vision for a kingdom community in Bowness. And I, I shared with you a little bit about what we believe that God is calling us to be doing. Planting churches into this town. Not, not planting into Grangemouth or Lilithgo uh, or Lithgi as people say. <laughs> to say uh, not, not planting into Edinburgh, not planting into Falkirk, but in Bowness to have churches in Bonesta of building a community and that we also want to identify and equip and develop and encourage emerging leaders in our midst. You know, or you might not know, the heritage of this church is an equipping and sending church. If you, if you look around the apostolic church in this country and other denominations as well, if you look at the people that are in leadership somewhere, that have come through Bowness, the fellowship here. It's really quite remarkable. Everywhere I go, people know at least two names, normally more, but they will know the name of Len Bennett, and they will know the name of Derek Meldon. Probably for different reasons, <laughs> but they'll know both names. And their families are extended around the country as well. God has used this as an equipping church and he has that still in his heart. Next week, we're going to start looking at our values in a bit more depth, uh, a bit more detail. And if you read our values statements, which we've mailed out a while ago, we'll make sure there's some more available when we're back in the house, uh, back in, in our church. And also, they're on the banner as you come down the stairs there. If you read our values, you'll see at the top it says that we are an expectantly courageous people. That we have high hopes. That we anticipate seeing God doing great things 
as we move forward with courage. It's not that we're simply courageous people, but that we're expectant within that courage. That we, we have a view in our courage. That, that we're pulling out our spiritual binoculars and we're trying to see something far off and say, perhaps, perhaps we could do this. Or perhaps God will do this. Perhaps this morning you feel that this represents you quite well. Perhaps you feel though, uh, as though you're up for the challenge. You, you have a strong trust that God is going to move in this town and lead us and lead you into victory. Perhaps you already have that kind of courage. Or perhaps this morning you don't feel like expectantly courageous is a thing that actually accurately describes you. Perhaps you feel that a vision for a kingdom community in Bonas is unrealistic. Perhaps you've seen too many unfulfilled visions and promises through church, through history. Perhaps you've had too many dreams that have failed to come to fruition. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps it seems like a word that is loaded with uncertainty, loaded with doubt, a pessimistic word. Perhaps, maybe, Perhaps might be a fearful word. Perhaps everything's going to fall apart after Brexit. Perhaps the SNP will be successful in, in, in creating you know, the, the uh, independence for Scotland. And I, I, do you know, I don't mind which side of that you're on. But, but that can still be a fearful thing either side. There's a lot of perhapses that generate fear. Perhaps these, these leaders in this church are just going to run us down the road that we don't want to go down. Perhaps. 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 If you have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry if you don't because it will come up on the screen, but if you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel 14, if you don't have a Bible, just don't worry, it's fine. But 1 Samuel and chapter 14, and we're going to be reading from there in a second. And this is where we see perhaps become a positive word. This is where we see perhaps become a word that is filled with faith and trust. And that's my ambition today, is that we can take all of our maybes, that we can take all of our perhapses and all of our, oh, I hope so's, and we can turn them into certainties, or we can turn them into a sure foundation in Christ, that we can change the way that we use that word. So reading from the top, 1 Samuel 14, verse 1, reading onwards. <coughs> One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul, his father, was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate tree in Midran, and with him were about 600 men, among, them, uh, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was son, a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Let me pause there for a second, just put your finger on that, that verse. Ichabod was the son of a man 
who was the son of Eli, who was a spokesman for God. But Eli's sons, were they were bad. They were rebellious. They didn't behave themselves. And then Phileas was killed in battle. The minute that Eli heard about this, he fell over and died. And in the midst of all this, this young boy, Ichabod, is born. And his name kind of means to weigh heavy upon. And it really is referring to the glory of the Lord, the heaviness, the glory of the Lord having left the land. And in, in this one little verse we see a warning. We see a warning about listening to God. Being faithful and serving Him. His mother, as she gave him this name, said the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. With our vision, we want to make sure that we keep our ear tuned to what the King of Kings is saying. Not just as a leadership, but as a fellowship. That we want to keep ourselves tuned to what God is saying. You know, we have a sure foundation in Christ. I want you to know we have a sure foundation in Christ. But we can miss something that God is doing if we're busy trying to do it our own way. And we don't want to do that. That's not what our heart is here. Moving on, verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan uh, intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff, a crag. One was called Boses and the other was called Senna. One cliff stood up to the north uh, toward Michmash and the other south towards Geba. Michmash is such a great name for a place, isn't it? It sounds like somewhere uh, in the Kangles. Um, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men and perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps, that's a faith-filled perhaps right there. Let's go over there to these heathen chappies, let's sort them out, and perhaps God is going to do something here and, and do this on our behalf because he's mighty to save, whether that's going to be by many or by few. You know, if we get 10 years down the road and we've done everything that God has asked us to do and five people come to faith through that, just five, are we happy with that? I'm happy if one person commits their life to Jesus and is rescued. But I believe God is able to do more, Amazing. much more. Much more. So we move forward saying, perhaps God will do this, whether by many or by a few. Whether we will have one church of 50 people or 10 churches of 100 people, whatever, it doesn't affect our resolve to move forward and trust God. Because the vision is His. Do all that you have in mind, His armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Isn't that a great statement? You'll find out why that's such a great statement in a minute. And then Jonathan says, come on then, we'll cross over toward them and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up here, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them 
showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. And I've just got this image in my head, them popping up over this crowd going, Wee! Who <laughs> am You know, there's two of them. And there's an outpost of Philistines there. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews, they're crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearers, and I'm sure there was some banter going on in that. Come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, you puny little Hebrews. Come over here, we'll teach you. Kind of, doesn't that feel a bit like the church right now, where everything in society and in government and what have you is kind of aimed at secularizing schools, government, councils, trying to just close the door a little bit at a time. And they seem like a really big organization, a big together army against us. But it only takes two of us to go, <laughs> hey guys, here we are, we're here. And they will say, come on then, we're going to teach you a lesson. It's great. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, I've just realized I'm so sorry, I haven't done that. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, um, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet uh, with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, followed and killed behind him. And in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an hectare. And then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and, they, uh, and in the field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. There's a word called perhaps, and it can be loaded with courage and expectation. Can you be an expectantly courageous person this morning? There's a predicament here. And the predicament for this passage can actually be found in the previous chapters. And I recommend that you have a little look into there in your own time and just uh, contemplate them. But to summarise, I I would say that Israel is in a little bit of a pickle right now. You've, you've already heard of what happened with Eli and his sons, and that the glory of the Lord has gone. The Philistines have taken the ark, the thing that represents God's presence. It's gone. So the thing that the Israelites, the Hebrews, used to rely upon is no longer there. They're out on their own, outnumbered, outgunned. They're surrounded by a vast army of Philistines who are assembled to fight them. And this army is so huge that the writer says that, that the only way that he could number the actual foot soldiers was by saying, like, the sand on the shore. That is a big army, even by today's standards. He actually managed to count the chariots, there were 3,000. And then the people to operate the chariots, there were 6,000. Even before you get to the multitude, grains of sand of the foot soldiers. By contrast, King Saul had a much smaller force. And to make matters worse, Saul and his 
his son Jonathan were the only two Hebrews to have weapons. Six thousand charioteers, an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And here is a small army with only two lots of weapons in the entire army. Does that sound a bit hopeless? This is the context where Jonathan says perhaps. This is the context. You know, we're a small church. By, by today's standards, we're, we're a small church. We can punch above our weight, that's fine. Because it's not about how big we are, it's about how big our God is. If ever there was a time for courage, it was now. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been outnumbered, outgunned, so to speak, where the situation has seemed so utterly impossible that defeat seems pretty much certain? Saul and his army knew that feeling, and fear was starting to weave its way through the ranks. In chapter 13, verse 7 says this, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him there were quaking with fear. I don't know how afraid you have been recently with things that are going on in your life or around the world. And I don't know if you've ever been in the place where you are so afraid that it affects your physical body, where you shake. And that is what happened to these soldiers. And we can easily think, wow, puny soldiers, <laughs> they're obviously wusses, aren't they? These are hardened fighting men. And they were quaking with fear because of the odds stacked against them. And all they could fight with was whatever they could get to their hands, a stick or whatever. No actual weapons. It takes a certain depth of fear to get to a physical manifestation. That's not me just thinking, oh, I'm afraid I might have left my front door unlocked or left my keys in the car. There's something deeper there in the fear. And our response to fear is almost always negative, unhelpful, damaging in its outworking. And it doesn't matter if you're responding to your own sense of fear or if you're responding to somebody else's fear. Fear spreads. Uh, I, it's a bit sad, but I'm quite a, a Second World War history buff. I love reading up on Second World War stuff. And I know that a lot of battalion commanders, if they knew that there was a man in their ranks that was starting to get to the point where he was trembling with fear, they would whip him out of the front line. They'd whip him out because they know that if they leave him there, that fear spreads and suddenly your effective fighting force is no longer effective. Fear cripples and it kills. So, in these kind of times, what's your expectation? Are you ex expectantly courageous? Saul responds to fear of the people pressure and to his own fear what will the people do he's worried for himself and he's worried for the people and so he takes matters into his own hands without seeking God without securing the favour of God he takes matters into his own hands he waits for seven days because he was supposed to wait for the arrival 
of God's man, Samuel. This is all in chapter 13, if you just read back later on. But when Samuel doesn't appear on time, the army starts to panic all the more. Some begin to leave, and they've only got 600 men left to fight. And they're afraid. And Saul's expectation at this point is that he is going to lose all of his men. And consequently, lose the battle, and consequently lose his crown. And so he takes matters into his own hands, and he makes an offering that was supposed to be made by the priests. He shouldn't have done this. It wasn't his role, it wasn't his job. And he did it, it seems like good reasons, he did it because this battle is imminent. And he assumes, if we go into battle and there hasn't been an offering made, then these men die without the favour of God upon their lives. So he's fearful for their eternal destination right there. It's just a good thing to be afraid for. But he jumps in and he takes the lead on what should have been Samuel's job. He was disobedient under the pressure of urgency. Moving ahead of God has consequences. Getting involved when it's not our place has consequences. Lagging behind also has consequences because of this, because we are out of step with God. Fear causes us to get out of step with God. Now hear this very carefully, I'm not talking about an eternal consequence here. But if I fail to step forward where God's asked me to step forward because I'm afraid, then there's a consequence for myself and there's a consequence for the, whatever that future was. If Jess and I, when we felt God say, go to Bonas, and we were like, where? Mm. You know, if it, we were afraid, I'm not, I'm not going to hide that from you. We're petrified leaving our friends behind, leaving our familiarity behind and stepping out and not knowing if people would like us or not. Then you step out in courage. If we didn't do that, what would be the consequence for us? Not walking in what God has asked of us. What would the consequence for you be if we didn't step into that? Because my disobedience will affect you. Yeah. And your disobedience will affect me. Mm-hmm. And the thing about being out of step with God is that it's really hard to spot in yourself. Really hard. Sometimes you get a conviction and you know it, but... But sometimes it takes a while before you get to the point of conviction and realise, hang on a minute, I'm out of step here. I'm out of step. And so we need open, transparent, accountable relationships. The reason I have so many leaders in this church is because I need them to keep me accountable, to keep me in step with God. They challenge me. They will tell me if they don't like something that I'm doing. And I might argue the point with them. And they might argue back. And that's a good thing. Because it's about transparency, it's about a relationship, it's about us being accountable to one another. It's important. Because if I get out of step, we all get out of step. Listen, God rarely says, hurry up, but he often says, wait. So often the urgent can crowd out the important in our lives. There are things which are bedrock important for us. And actually, our relationship with Jesus is number one priority. But sometimes life gets so busy with urgent things 
that those urgent things crowd out the thing that actually gives us life. There's a book called Too Busy Not to Pray. It's a clever title, but it's so true. If you are busy, you need to spend more time with God. Because just trying to answer all those urgencies and plug the holes, it's like you're trying to plug a ship that's going down in it. What you need is the Saviour to come and ride that vessel. It's a constant temptation. Hurry up. You must do this now. Perform. Achieve these results. We come across it every day in our own lives. And it's stressful. Some of you have stressful jobs. And those jobs say to you, hurry up. Deadline. 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 Don't get behind. Don't let that crowd out what is really important in your life. Because you will get to the end of that job. You will retire. And you will look back and you will find that you've missed out on life. The abundance that Jesus has given you. So, just quickly, notice this. When Samuel does arrive, Saul makes some excuses and starts to push the blame, not taking responsibility for his actions. Now, the battle is imminent, but the Israelites are woefully short-handed, and Saul, he's lost the Lord's favour for the battle. They're in a pickle. So two things I want you to note about being expectant and courageous. And the first is this. You're not number one. Thank you, Jesus. But also, nor am I. Mm. Okay. You, you don't have to be the lead character to be valuable. It's, it's still not about you. I'm glad that we sang that song, It's All About You, Jesus, because that's exactly it. Because mm. it's not about me. But you do still have a great part to play. Mm-hmm. It takes courage to be the person that stands beside or behind the lead character. That takes courage. It takes courage to play the supporting role. It takes courage to follow someone else's vision or plan. It's a tough place to be. Do you need something in order for you to feel like you matter? Do you you need recognition? Do you need an assigned role? Do you need a public identity? Do you need a title? Let me tell you, you matter. You matter. You might not be playing the lead role. Ultimately, none of us are playing the lead role because God is. But even in the context of a church or even in the context of a workplace, you don't have to play the lead role to have a ground-shaking role in that place. The armor-bearer, he wasn't even named. They could have just called him Stan. But it just says, Jonathan's armor-bearer. He didn't even get named, but he still had a massive part to play. And he wasn't even equipped. It was Jonathan who had the weapons. And his armor there was just carrying them all. You know, have a sword. Oh no, spear time. Take a spear. And he's going on using the weapons that Jonathan's not using to kind of mop it all up behind Jonathan. He just gets on with it. He never says, oh Jonathan, do you mind if I have a quick go in the front? I quite fancy that. He doesn't do it once. He just goes behind Jonathan. And he does what is required of him in there. He wasn't really equipped with this at all. And yet he was courageous and he said, I am with you, heart and soul. Amen. Can we say to God this morning, I'm with you, heart and soul. 
Can we say with this vision that we as a leadership believe God has given us for this church, can we say, I'm with you, heart and soul? Can we say to each other, even if we don't always agree, even if sometimes we agree vocally or loudly, can we still say, I'm with you, heart and soul? My purpose and your purpose, they're the same thing because they're God's purpose that we're chasing down. You're not number one, but you're also not no one. To say I'm with you heart and soul, that is to be expectantly courageous. That is exactly it. And then when I started writing this message, I thought I'd be talking about Jonathan and his courage being the point of the spear going into these Philistines. I thought that's where the courage lay. And for sure it does lie there. And it lies in that perhaps that Jonathan says, you know, God might not do this like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know, you can shove us into this fire and we believe that God will save us. But even if he doesn't, perhaps God will, perhaps he won't. Even if he doesn't, we're still with you, heart and soul. Because the battle is his. You know, the other thing I want you to know is that small triumphs lead to big victories. Have any of you heard of this thing called marginal gains? Marginal gains. It's where you do minuscule little things in your workplace or in your workflow that actually have an impact. And the more of those mini little things that you do, the more impact you have at the end. I used to wind people up in the hotel that we used to run because I would get the, the dishwasher trays, you know, the industrial ones, and I would say, make sure you've got them this way around. They're a sweat, so people would just look at me like I had two heads. Like, what are you talking about? But honestly, I worked out that this way around, you had one more row, which meant you got three more plates in there. And now when you are doing 300 people, uh, you're putting all those plates through, an extra three plates in each tray as they go through saves you about 10 minutes at the end of the day. You get out a little bit earlier. That's what marginal gains is all about. For those of you who've worked in catering, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> don't devalue the power of a small victory. Amen. You know, in the morning, even in your own life, the morning where you get up, and you go, do you know what? Don't feel like it, but I'm just going to spend some time here just reading God's Word and spending time in His presence. That's a little triumph right there. Celebrate it, don't despise it. If, if you're afraid to evangelize the people way, you know, around you, if you're petrified to open your mouth to somebody in Tesco's, celebrate every little time you do it. Even if you just say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I go to Riverview Church. You know, celebrate that, don't despise that. You might not have given them the whole gospel. You might not have led them to Jesus there, again, in the fish aisle or the cheese aisle, but you've done something there. Celebrate that small victory. Do it with courage. Jonathan and his armor bearer only killed 20 men. Out of that army that is too vast to count, they killed 20 men. That's it. It seems a bit pathetic. But you look at what happened from that because they were obedient and they saw God out of it. 20 men are killed. And then what God does is he says, well done, boys. You've done what I asked you to do. Now watch what I can do. Mm. And he said, fear through the entire enemy's camp. All you have to do is stand up and say, no, this is the truth and I will stand upon that. It might be a tiny victory, but you watch what God 
can do with that? Can we be expectant and courageous with that? And I'm nearly done. It takes courage to try. It takes the expectation of victory, but also the possibility of failure. We might fail. The vision that I put before you last week, we might completely fail that. We might get 10 years down the line and still be exactly the same size in exactly the same building. But if we've done everything that we can do to follow God and stand up in courage and expectation and say, okay, God, we're here. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Winston Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. You, have you screwed it all up? Do you feel like a bit of a screw up this morning? If you do, you're in really good company. Because I felt like that on more than one occasion this week. When you know the difficulties that you adore, when the battle seems inevitable, how you choose to respond, even before a blow is struck, will have a far-reaching consequence for you and everyone connected. So do you feel afraid? I do, daily. I'm not kidding you. I am petrified in this job. I am not lying about that. Ask Jess. The amount of times I lie in my bed at night and my eyes are just open because I'm petrified. I'm petrified of hurting people. I'm petrified of getting it wrong. I'm petrified of of leading the church down a rabbit hole that, that's not where God wants us to go. I'm petrified of every single decision that we make, and some of them are big and some of them are small. They terrify me. Can you get up when that is how you feel and still say, I'm going to step forward because I'm going to trust God? I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not doing myself. I hope you see that. As a pastor, it's important that I stay vulnerable. But staying vulnerable means that I'm vulnerable. It means that I get hurt by everything. But if I, I, I know exactly how to cope with this, I know exactly what to do. I can build a wall that protects me. I can do that. I can take every bit of criticism on the chin and like literally bring it on all day long. I can stand there like this. But, but the thing is, that's not who you need to be leading a church. That's not the qualification of a church leader. That's not how strength is displayed in a Christian life. And so I'm talking to you as well. Because your strength is displayed in your vulnerability. If you harden your heart to people, you harden your heart to God. You cannot, you cannot separate those two things. If you are hard, twisted, bitter towards people, you, you will be towards God as well. Do you understand that? So we have to stay vulnerable, guys. And we have to say, look, we've only got a sword and a plowshare, and there's an army bigger than we can count. But let's trust God and ride right into the middle of it. And let's take him down. Keep going, even when you're afraid, lean into him. Jesus saying, do not fear. He's not actually saying that you're wrong to experience the feeling of fear. Because you have no control over that. What he's saying is, respond well in the midst of that. When Jesus says time and time again, do not worry, do not fear. He's actually giving you a direction. What he's actually saying is, lean into me. Trust me. 
Put your hope in me. Put your expectation in me. Put your courage in me. Do not fear. So I don't want you to be beaten up by feeling if you're afraid that somehow you're in the wrong. What I am asking is that we stand as a believing people. Have you got enough faith to say perhaps God will do this? Have you got enough faith to take that vision? And if you missed that last week, it's, it's online, so go and catch our podcast from last week. But have, have, you, have you got the courage to say, I'm going to chase that down, and I'm going to spend myself in the pursuit of what I believe God's called us to here, even if I'm terrified? Have you got the faith to say, even if we fail, we're going to fail wholeheartedly pursuing Jesus? With our eyes upon him. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's recognizing fear in our lives and getting on with it anyway.